The time is now six o'clock. Welcome to WORT's local news for Tuesday, January 2nd. I'm your host, Sarah Hopeful. And I'm your host, Christian Knudsen. In tonight's news, a police chase in Manila last night ended with three fatalities. The Wisconsin Supreme Court set a tight deadline for new voting maps before the 2024 election. Universities of Wisconsin regents are embroiled in more controversy after firing a chancellor. And in the second half, WRT ushers in another election year with a UW-Madison journalism professor and the white-footed mouse steps into the spotlight. This is Christian Knudsen and Sarah Hopeful with your local news, coming to you live from the WORT studios on Bedford Street in beautiful downtown Madison. Welcome to the first 2024 edition of the 6 p.m. local news. The new year just started, but Wisconsin's role in the 2024 presidential election is already kicking into gear. A bipartisan state committee released an official list today of the candidates that will appear on the April 2nd primary ballot, the Wisconsin State Journal reports. On the Republican side, six candidates, including former President Donald Trump, will be listed. President Joe Biden will be the only candidate in the Democratic Party's primary. The other Republican candidates are Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley, former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, biotech entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy, and former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson. There are efforts in several states, including Wisconsin, seeking to remove Trump from the ballot over his role in the January 6, 2021 U.S. Capitol insurrection. Authorities in Colorado and Maine have already barred Trump, but legal challenges to those decisions are expected. COVID-19 caused fewer deaths in Wisconsin last year compared to the height of the pandemic, but the virus still claimed more than 1,000 lives in 2023, and thousands more residents were hospitalized, the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel reports. According to the latest numbers from the Federal Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, at least 1,124 Wisconsinites died from COVID-19 in 2023. That number is expected to increase, though, as deaths from the last few weeks of the year are reported. By comparison, more than 6,000 people died from the virus in 2020. The state has seen more than 17,000 COVID-19 deaths since the pandemic began. The CDC notes increased immunity from vaccinations and past infections has led to lower death and hospitalization rates. Two bills dealing with energy policy could pass the state legislature in the near future, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. One measure would give Wisconsin companies exclusive rights to build electric transmission line projects in the state. Republican legislative leaders support the plan, saying it would reduce construction costs and save money for Wisconsin ratepayers. But critics, including some conservative groups, say blocking out-of-state companies unfairly limits competition. The other proposal would loosen rules on who can operate electric vehicle charging stations in the state. Currently, only utility companies can sell power by the kilowatt hour. Under the new bill, private businesses could get into the charging station game as well. The plan has Republican backing, but Assembly Speaker Robin Voss raised some concerns about using federal money that would become available to the state as a result of the change. And now we have some updates on stories that developed while WORT's local news was on break over the holidays. Dane County board members decided they need more time to consider a controversial new airport lease agreement, the Capital Times reports. Late in December, board members voted to push off any decision on the contract extension until at least mid-January. The proposed contract would give state and federal military agencies use of the Dane County Regional Airport for another decade in exchange for providing fire and emergency services. 
The deal has raised concerns among board members, residents, and environmental groups. They say it would let the military off the hook for any pollution or contamination they cause at the airport. The facility and nearby areas are already contaminated with PFAS chemicals, likely from firefighting foam. Dane County board members said they will use the additional time to look into sections of the contract related to liability. Workers broke ground in late December on a new affordable housing project in Madison that will be one of the city's largest, the Capital Times reports. The Rise Madison development at the intersection of East Washington and Fair Oaks Avenues will include 245 units with rents that meet the city's affordable housing criteria. Residents who make between 30 and 80% of the area's medium income will be eligible. That's between about 30,000 and 80,000 for a household of two. A portion of the units will be for residents age 55 and older. Construction is set to be completed in stages with some units ready for move-in by February 2025. Wisconsin U.S. Senator Tammy Baldwin, a Democrat, is calling for a humanitarian ceasefire in the ongoing war in Gaza. In a press release late last month, Baldwin condemned the October 7th Hamas terror attacks in Israel, but also criticized the Israeli government's ongoing siege and bombardment of Gaza. She said Israel had caused, quote, unacceptable bloodshed, unquote, of Palestinian civilians. The statement called for an immediate humanitarian ceasefire to allow aid access into Gaza along with the release of all hostages taken by Hamas. Baldwin had been facing increasing pressure to speak out against the large-scale killing of Palestinian civilians. Many human rights groups and international organizations warn that Israel's actions amount to ethnic cleansing and genocide. Those were the headlines, and now on to the rest of today's top stories. Just days before Christmas, the state Supreme Court issued a much-anticipated ruling on Wisconsin's current legislative district maps. The court's liberal majority ruled that many of the districts are non-contiguous and therefore unconstitutional. WRT News producer Faye Parks shares details on the ruling and what comes next. Just over a month after they heard oral arguments in the lawsuit, the state Supreme Court ruled Wisconsin's voting maps unconstitutional in a 4-3 to three vote. They ultimately sided with the petitioners, a group of Wisconsin voters who argued that many of the current voting districts are non-contiguous. The state Supreme Court instituted those maps in 2022, when the top courts still had a conservative majority. At the time, they ruled that the maps must prioritize the least changes from the maps enacted in 2011, which themselves were the subject of backdoor Republican negotiating and a case in the United States Supreme Court. In a press release, Governor Tony Evers said he's looking forward to new districts that reflect Wisconsin's status as a purple state. While Wisconsin voters are more or less evenly divided between the two parties, Republicans hold a 22 to 11 supermajority in the state Senate and a 64 to 35 near supermajority in the assembly. Justice Jill Karofsky wrote the majority opinion, which argued that Wisconsin's current districts feature a striking amount of disconnected territory. By the majority's estimate, at least 50 out of Wisconsin's 99 assembly districts and at least 20 of the 33 state Senate districts are non-contiguous, meaning they don't touch. Despite ruling the current maps unconstitutional, the court declined a request to invalidate the 2022 state Senate elections. Now, the state Supreme Court has ordered both parties to submit a new map proposal, which will then be reviewed over the next couple months. Those map proposals must be equally divided by population as much as possible, 
bounded by county, precinct, town, or ward lines, and comply with federal civil rights voting laws. Jordan Ellenberg is a math professor at UW-Madison, specializing in geometry and an expert on redistricting. Speaking earlier today on WORT, he outlined how complicated carving up the state can be. Geographic legislative districts were created. They have been intended to represent political communities. That's what they're for. Both parties in the lawsuit have until next Friday to propose draft maps and until January 22nd to submit their response briefs. The court also hired two redistricting consultants who must evaluate the proposals by February 1st, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. If the consultants are not satisfied with either proposal, they can draft their own boundaries that would undergo the same review process. In order for the maps to be ready for the August legislative primary, they need to be finalized by mid-March. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Faye Parks. A state investigation was launched today after three people were killed in a car chase with police through the city of Monona. WORT reporter LSF has more about this developing story. Three people died last night in Cottage Grove after a car chase with Monona police officers and other local law enforcement. A press release sent out this morning by the Monona Police Department described the vehicle as fleeing from a traffic stop on a, quote, suspicious vehicle. The vehicle crashed about five miles from the initial traffic stop at the intersection of Femrite Drive and Buckeye Road after a Dane County deputy stopped the car with tire spikes. The three people inside the car died on the scene. One of the victims was an 18-year-old girl. The other two were young men around the same age, a close friend of the girl's family told WORT. Press releases from both the Wisconsin Department of Justice and the city of Monona did not say whether the tire deflation device, the tire spikes, directly resulted in the fatal car crash. According to the use of force policies reviewed by WORT today, the Dane County Sheriff's Office and the Monona Police Department do not consider deploying spike strips on four-wheeled vehicles as a use of deadly force. And Dane County's policy on pursuing vehicles states that a chase should be started only if the need to apprehend the suspect, quote, outweighs the risk to the community should the suspect remain at large, unquote. A review of the use of force incidents by Monona Police in 2021, the latest year for which data is available, finds that Monona Police used tire spikes in 13 of roughly 31 car chases. A review of Dane County's deputies' use of spikes is not immediately available. The Department of Criminal Investigation, or DCI, is currently investigating the incident, as mandated by a 2014 state law that requires DCI to investigate all deaths that result directly from the action of police. In 2023, Wisconsin police officers caused 13 deaths, reported and investigated by DCI. The three deaths yesterday are the first under investigation for officer involvement in Wisconsin in the new year. The Wisconsin Department of Justice has placed the officers involved in the fatal incident on administrative duty while the DCI reviews evidence and prepares a report. Once the investigation is complete, the report will be turned over to the Dane County District Attorney. Monona Mayor Mary O'Connor says she hasn't heard any concerns from the Monona community about the investigation. Kind of people are just wondering what happened and um, I think Overall, uh, the police department has a great relationship with the rest of the city. And I know I have a great relationship with the department. So I think people are just wanting to wait and see, you know, what the investigation shows. And obviously people are, you know, any law, anytime there's loss of life, people are concerned and, you know, feel bad about that. But I think, you know, we also, I also know that, you know, I'm sure it had an impact on our officers who were involved and, you know, anything like this impacts a lot of different people. Meanwhile, a man who was detained at gunpoint by Monona police in the home he was staying 
was rewarded a $150,000 settlement from the city in 2022. That sparked a review of some of the department's procedures. Both the Monona Police Department and the DCI declined WORT's requests for comment. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Ella Saff. It's now 6.18 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. While WRT News staff were on holiday, the Board of Regents for the Universities of Wisconsin voted unanimously to fire Joe Gao as Chancellor of UW-La Crosse. That's after the discovery that he's been publishing pornographic videos online. Kelly Meyerhofer is a higher education reporter with the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel and previously appeared on our show to discuss the board's recent funding deal with the state legislature. Earlier today, Meyerhofer published details from her interview with Gao and gave WRT News producer Faye Parks what she learned. Thank you for joining me, Kelly. Thanks for having me. So for the listeners not familiar with this case, when was Joe Gao fired as chancellor of UW-La Crosse and what reasoning did the board provide? This happened last Wednesday evening. The Board of Regents met behind closed doors for about three hours and came out and announced they had fired the UW-La Crosse chancellor, Joe Gao, for abhorrent, reckless behavior. He had been found appearing in videos on several porn websites, and they said that he had caused the university significant reputational harm. It was specifically because of those videos that he was fired. That was the reasoning they pointed to. Well, I mean, they didn't lay out like in their statement that, you know, he had appeared in porn videos, but, you know, that's sort of where my research led me. And have you spoken to any of the regents? Have they elaborated at all on the decision? They met behind closed doors Friday, and that was, you know, an executive session, so they don't really say much about it, you know, and they just have released the one statement. I know UW System President Jay Rothman released another statement on Friday, sort of responding to what the former chancellor had said in a lot of different media interviews, which was that he felt he wasn't afforded due process and hadn't met with board members before they decided to fire him, and he thought he had the right, you know, under the First Amendment to write books and produce make videos and he shouldn't have been fired for that. And is it true that he was just months away from his scheduled retirement? Yeah, he had announced back in August that he was planning to step down as chancellor at the end of this school year. So that would be in in May of 2024. And then he, like all chancellors, you know, most all chancellors, I think, you know, when you're hired, you typically come from an academic background and you're offered, you know, a position as a tenured professor. So he planned to use that other appointment that he had and return to teach at UW-La Crosse. He uh, studies in the field of like communications. And so he's still technically a tenured professor at La Crosse. Is that right? Yes, he is still an employee, although he is on paid administrative leave and the UW system president has filed to initiate sort of a review of his tenured faculty status with the new chancellor, his successor. So what exactly was the timeline on his firing? My understanding is that he'd been posting videos for at least a year publicly. So do you know when exactly the board realized that this was happening? Yeah, the timeline has been interesting to figure out. I've talked to Dr. Gao and he said he and his wife have been making these sorts of videos for nearly a year, but I mean, they were they were private for most of his time and it was only recently, like in the last two months or so, that they decided to make it less private and maybe put some of the videos on like free porn websites that weren't sort of behind a paywall. And they added their photo to their Twitter profile and 
their Amazon like author bio photo. So they made it more public, but like if you were just to search his name, it wouldn't show up. It was sort of under a different moniker, sexy, happy couple. So they shifted to making that part of their life be a little more public uh, in the past two months. And then the UW system spokesperson has told me they became aware of it the week of December 18th. And then that holiday week, the week of the 25th, is when they voted to fire him. And you also reported that Dr. Gao had been reprimanded and denied a raise, along with one other system chancellor, when he invited a porn star to speak on campus. Do you have any more information about that? Yeah, that was five years ago, almost exactly five years ago. He invited a porn star, Nina Hartley, to speak on campus as part of this free speech week of events that he decided to launch that year. And there was a lot of blowback at the time. It was very controversial. Some people supported him and said, free speech on campus. You know, you should bring people that you don't agree with what they do or what they stand for, but they have the right to talk about their lives. And then there were others who said it was just very poor judgment of a chancellor to invite a porn star to speak on campus. And that was the UW system's perspective. So they reprimanded him. He lost a pay raise that year. And I think you know, in talking with him since that episode, I think he felt like he was sort of forced into apologizing for it and he doesn't regret it. So you mentioned you've, you've recently spoken to him. Did he explain why he and his wife decided to start posting these videos? Did he have any specific reasoning for that? Yeah, I talked to him several times over the past week and, um, you know, his sort of explanation was he's heard for many years about UW leaders talk about, you know, free speech is important. And he kind of wanted, I think, to test that commitment. And, you know, he's told me I felt, you know, we could be a little more open about it and let's let's raise these free speech issues and, and see how UW responds to them. So he and his wife, in a way, they wanted it to become public. Uh, you know, they've said they didn't think by gradually making it a little less private They didn't expect for people to find their videos so quickly, and they thought he would be long done with his chancellor position by the time it became national news. So he has discussed his interest in free speech rights, specifically on college campuses, pretty consistently. He's saying his firing infringes on his free speech. Can you explain more about that sort of interpretation of the law that he's bringing up? Yeah, I mean, he feels that what he and his wife do on their personal time, writing a book, producing, you know, video content, that's within their rights to do that from the board's perspective. You know, he has sort of two separate appointments. His appointment as chancellor was what's called a a limited appointment, and that means you're an at-will employee. There's a line in your contract saying, you know, if you behave in a way that brings adverse reaction to the university or it goes against our, you know, the university's interests, we can let you go. And that's, you know, what they've said in in removing him from that position. I think terminating his tenured faculty status will be much more difficult and, and tricky. I don't know if the board will be open to firing him for that. So as it stands now, because of that at-will clause in the chancellorship position, would he really have any legal standing to sue the board if he wanted to? Yeah, it's a good question. I talked to three sort of free speech and sort of higher ed employment law experts. Two of them said he has really no case and the board has has the right to fire him as chancellor. And they said it's a lot trickier to fire him, you know, as a faculty member. The third expert I talked to was with a free speech rights 
kind of national organization. And they seem to think he may have a case, but, you know, they were talking to me like a day or two after the news broke. So like they said, you know, we kind of need to see what the evidence is there. But he said the, the, the case may have something to it. And did he express interest in pursuing legal action when the two of you spoke? He said he's contemplating a lawsuit and, you know, some lawyers or groups have reached out to him, you know, wanting to talk and maybe represent him. So I think he will be hiring a lawyer in the next week or two and we'll go from there. And so this brings up the wider question of free speech on college campuses across the country. So, for example, UW-Madison recently could do very little to condemn a student who posted a video using racial slurs online. What makes this case different? And have you seen similar cases of free speech for school staff, faculty crop up elsewhere in the state or the country? I think what makes this case so unusual is that living this sort of unconventional lifestyle, you know, is is pretty unheard of for a higher education leader. You know, most academics are pretty traditional in in how they approach things, and and the former Chancellor Gao is not. But he is, you know, a leader of an institution. It just put the board in a a position where they had to make a decision, you know, a decision on that. But but the more interesting, I think, question awaiting them is whether he should be fired as as a tenured faculty member. I've come across a few other, you know, sort of uh, cases where, you know, it's like a teacher who was found to be posting videos on OnlyFans or like a police officer posting videos of themselves like in uniform, you know, and those cases are sort of similar, but also not because they, they were rank and file employees. They weren't like, you know, the police chief or the school superintendent. So this is different just because I think of the, the high profile nature of the position. I thought this quote sort of summed up how he's led the university in a very unconventional way. He said, you know, my feeling has been, let's try to be as honest as we can and open. It's a university. And then I was viewed as this, you know, kind of like, what's he doing? I think he's felt sort of like an outsider for a while because he does think differently than most higher education leaders would. And I thought that quote just sort of illustrated that. Thank you again for agreeing to speak with me, Kelly. Yeah, no problem. That was Kelly Meyerhofer, a higher education reporter for the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. She recently sat down with Joe Gao, ousted from his chancellorship at UW-La Crosse after the board discovered pornographic videos he's been posting online. Kelly says that Dr. Gao may pursue legal action soon, and should he be fired from his tenured professorship, it may strengthen his case. The time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. I'm Sarah Hopeful, here with Christian Knutson. Thanks for joining us. On last Friday's 8 o'clock buzz, host Brian Standing spoke with Mike Wagner, who is a journalism professor at UW-Madison. As another election season gets underway, Wagner shared some of his political predictions for 2024. So long, 2023. Don't let the door hit you. Um, We're not going to live in the past or the present anymore. We're going to march right into the face of the year 2024 now, or I should say the political year. Joining us to lead that parade is UW-Madison School of Journalism professor Mike Wagner. Mike, welcome back to the Friday Buzz and Happy New Year. It's great to be here. Generally speaking, do you think we're in for a rough political ride? I think so. I I think it's going to be a year where those 
who are losing power are going to do anything and everything they can to try and keep it, and that's likely to get quite ugly. And what would be your definition of losing power? How do we know if you're that person? How, how, how are they losing power? So you can lose power by losing an election and then contesting that you've lost or continuing mm-hmm. uh, to contest that you've lost. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can lose power when a court makes a decision mm-hmm. that takes away mm-hmm. uh, uh, power. You can lose power when the court of public opinion uh, mm-hmm. changes. You can lose mm-hmm. power when your colleagues stop, stop listening to you. And all, all of those things, I think, are potentials for various folks in, in 2024. And each of them resonate um, in, in, the, in a very present way um, as, you, as, you, as you listed those off. But this polling, uh, and we'll be drifting into the presidential election, I'm sure, here in the next um, the period of time in our conversation. But this polling just says a small majority of Americans don't want either a Biden or a Trump candidacy. What do you make of that? Well, people are often dissatisfied with their political leaders. You know, Congress has been extraordinarily unpopular for several decades. Most presidents in the last, in in our century, have kind of hovered, you know, around 50% uh, short of extraordinary events like 9-11 or been under 50% uh, for for the most part, except, you know, for for President Obama. And, And so... It's not surprising to hear this. We have uh, uh, a media world where there are uh, outlets that will give you a 24-hour stream of negative news about one of those two folks. Um, and so the, 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 the anti-base is built up pretty strong against both. It's very hard for, for presidents and presidential candidates to persuade um, folks to come to their side uh, as compared to how it was um, before uh, our, our century began. And so... Um, you know, it's not surprising to hear that. It's also the case that, you know, they're both, you know, um, in, uh, in, in, in near the end of their lives compared to most folks, uh, you know, in the country. And so, you know, I think some people are worried about age. Some people are worried mm-hmm. about anti-democratic behavior. Some people are worried about mm-hmm. actual political positions on issues and all of those things. Yeah. Um, don't lead to a whole lot of positivity toward presidential candidates. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with you to be a Madison School of Journalism, Professor Michael Wagner. Okay, all a professor on university winter break needs is homework, but I I ask you and you graciously agreed to come prepared to share two state political predictions for 2024 and two national political predictions. Will you share one of your state predictions now? Sure. Um, After the redistricting is redone, um, the Republicans will hold on to both the Assembly and the Senate, so uh, in in the state. So I, I think that it will it will matter. I think the Democrats are likely to make some gains in Wisconsin after uh, the maps are redrawn, but I don't think it's enough to shift majorities in either. You actually provided two political predictions in one there, uh, Professor. Um, I want you to get your money's worth. You, you can say that again. Um, it, it, the, 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 the political prediction I heard inside the political prediction uh, was that there would be maps drawn at all. I, I, of course, uh, the, it, with the decision last week, um, this is now in motion. But with a March deadline, I'm just so cynical about the hullabaloo that is coming in the days ahead to to actually make new maps. Um, you, you seem to believe that, that that's, that's going to come off. I, I think that the majority party might well worry that if they don't do this, the court will just do it for them, and they oh. don't want the Oh, sure. That's um, that's sort of the, the loaded gun, isn't it? It, it, it could be. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. Um, but, uh, and Republicans um, is staying in the majority with some Democrat 
Democratic gains. That's, uh, that's, that's, I think there'll be some modest gains, but but no, nothing to change the majority. Should we be surprised by that? I think a lot of people anticipating new maps, like everything's going to flip. I, I think that's the feeling, but you know, part of the way districting is done, you know, still has to be about compactness of the district and the and the contiguity of the district, and so Democrats tend to live a little bit more in Madison and Milwaukee. Now, there are plenty of Democrats in other parts of the state, um, and, and this will uh, affect, um, you know, who wins some elections, but it'll affect how close other elections are, which might then, well, influence who candidates end up being on, on the right and the left in different districts. But I, I don't think that um, Democrats and, and where they live is, is spread to the point where we should expect them to have majorities in, in the state. I, I don't mean to take us too 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 far into the weeds on this prediction, but given what you, what you've just shared, um, how does one um, explain um, statewide victories like uh, the most recent Supreme Court race, the eleven point victory by the liberal, uh, it, 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 the, the statewide wins of, of people like Tony Tony Evers and so forth? Well, there are more Democrats than Republicans in in, mm-hmm. in, in the state, and and so, but since they live more compactly yeah they it's not an advantage in races that have district lines when it's a statewide race democrats have the advantage Um, when it's you know Mm -hmm. when you have to take into account Mm -hmm. different counties in northwest north central northeast you know central wisconsin um you know then uh those those statewide advantages are less relevant it's it's like how donald trump has never won the popular vote but won the president yeah you know it's it's the same kind of okay um professor wagner's second state political prediction for 2024 uh i would i think that um robin voss the uh assembly speaker is, is likely to make good on his promise to begin to eliminate DEI positions that are state positions uh, around around Wisconsin. So uh, positions related to diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, are likely to be eliminated, at least in name, um, if not uh, outright uh, in substance. Well, that's... Um that's uh, quite a prediction, and, and you, what, are, what are you basing that on? He had success at a place that you would think would be his least likely place to be successful, which was the university. Yeah. And so the university tends to say, you know, we have academic freedom, yeah. and, um, you know, the, the governor actually sued over um, the the lack of willingness to uh, execute the the pay raises and other elements of, of, of an agreement that had already been signed and passed by the you know signed by the governor and passed by the legislature, Voss was able to hold that back over the over the argument that the university needed to eliminate its DEI positions. The university could well have held fast and they could have let the court case play out, uh, which they they may well have won since um, I, I've I've not seen a court ever say that it's okay for a government to pass something and then not do it, um, and, and so. Uh, you know, the fact that he started with the university in one, I think, makes it more likely he'll be successful at, at other elements. That's so interesting. Uh, for most, uh, for many uh, conservatives, uh, the university is the poster child for DEI. Yeah, I think that's I think that's right. Um, you know, I, I, and I think that um, sometimes the unintended consequences of this and how many. DEI programs are, are geared toward rural students, first-generation college students, and, and others might might be a bit of a surprise to those who who think what they're doing is uh, eliminating discussions of, of race uh, on, on campus. The, those are two very um, sturdy um, uh, predictions, um, Mike. Um, and of course, we know we are uh, 
recording this into the digital information Great. machine. Um, and um, December 29, 2024, we'll be here in the blink of an eye and we'll be seated and we're going to play these back and we're gonna, <laughs> and, and you're going to be, you know, awarded the, uh, the genius grant. I, 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 that's my prediction. But on to national uh, politics. I, I, I think um, it's the national uh, political spectrum in 2024 that's going to send a lot of us hiding under our beds um, come Monday morning. What's one of your 2024 national political predictions? I think the Supreme Court is not going to be able to avoid the issue of whether President Trump can appear on ballots in primary elections. Now that more states have weighed in and taken different positions, I think the Supreme Court is likely going to have to step in. And I suspect, I'm not a court expert, so this is just blind guessing, but I suspect the court will say that since the president has not been found guilty yet of insurrection, that he can't be taken off the ballot. But we'll, of course, have to see what happens. Um, and that is, 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 rolling, is rolling along. Um, and so as uh, uh, timelines go with uh, 2024 predictions of this sort, we, we're going to begin to, to hear and see more about that sooner rather than later, wouldn't you say? I think I think they're going to have to. Yeah, I think their hand is kind of being forced to, you know, Michigan made a different decision than Colorado. Maine also now has said that, that the former president can't appear on the ballot. And so I, I think they're forcing the court's hand. You know, you, you, you told me um, uh, that you, you wanted to give us uh, our, our money's worth. So um, I'm going to I'm going to go ahead and try to get a freebie here. Um, what do you think? the high court will decide when it comes to the primary ballots uh, status of uh, former President Trump. So here, you know, and, and I'm not a Supreme Court expert, so this is just a, a citizen making a guess, but I think that they'll say that since the president, the former president has not been found guilty of insurrection, it's not appropriate to take him off the ballot. That, that'll be my guess. Um, mm. So mm. I, I don't think the court is going to want to make a decision as to whether uh, the president's involvement in January 6th is is grounds for him to be removed. I think they're going to want to say that a like uh, these 91 indictments need to work their way through the system um, before uh, you know they can make a decision okay. about that. Okay, and, and okay, okay, so on. onward. What is your second national political prediction for 2024? This one's more about the national news media, and I, I think we're going to see the national news media be a little bit more aggressive than has been typical in calling out anti-democratic behavior. I think one thing that these court decisions have done is that they've given cover to reporters um, who are afraid of being called biased. (laughs) And now they can say, no, a court has decided the former president engaged in an insurrection. And so they can be a little more direct uh, about their reporting about these things. Yes. Um, And I I think we're going to see a little bit more aggressive reporting about things that are good for democracy versus bad for democracy. Um, Once institutions start to weigh in, it gives national reporters a little more cover to report things that are verifiably true. Isn't the general public's um, overall perception of a bias in the media uh, supported and perhaps amplified by a point you made a couple of minutes ago with regards to the twin columns of, of, of very partisan, quote unquote, news services, uh, what, I forget what you called it, something like the 24 hour a day drumbeat of shouting um, at the other uh, side. Um, don't you, how do you think that that feeds into a, sort of a, a new paradigm? 
time of all journalism is biased. Well, all you have to do is look at MSNBC or all you have to do is look at Fox because so many people are getting uh, the word uh, from either one of those of those channels. Yeah, you know, it, it's just so complicated because there there is not a thing really that is the media. You know, it's not like... Um, you know, people at Fox News are meeting with people on MSNBC and deciding what they're going to do that day, right? You know, um, and, and, and so, you know, on the one hand, there's no such thing as the media. And then when we talk about sources like Fox and MSNBC, are we talking about the reporters who are reporting the news or are we talking about yeah. the opinion hosts who are yeah. doing these kind of shout fests, right. uh, you know? And, and so, you know, and then, of course, we have the place where almost all of these folks are getting their information, which is the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the, you know, major legacy news outlets. And so, you know, there's not a lot of evidence that more mainstream traditional sources have an ideological bias in, in one way or another. Um, there, there's some evidence that news media uh, cover, you know, economic issues more conservatively and social issues more liberally. Um, but, you know, there's not a, there's not a, evidence that mainstream legacy news is ideologically biased. We only have about a minute left, um, and I can't let um, the opportunity pass to have a, a political thinker like yourself on uh, without acknowledging the passing of um, uh, U.S. Senator Herb Cole. Sure. What comes to mind um, as we as we uh, consider um, his legacy? You know, he's uh, a person who we just don't see as much of in a contemporary political life uh, anymore, you know, I think his legacy will probably, you know, be largely tied to keeping the bucks here uh, in Milwaukee, uh, in, in some ways. But he's given, you know, millions of dollars to the university, uh, both for athletics and for the study of public policy. Um, he was a reliable liberal in the Senate, but also, you know, voted for uh, the Defense of Marriage Act, um, you know, and, and so he, you know, but but opposed a constitutional amendment banning same-sex marriage. And so, you know, he was a person who you know, was a little more independent in his thinking. Um, and, you know, voted against free trade for the Affordable Care Act, um, you know, and, and has a has a record of supporting kind of more populist left leaning issues um, in, in the state, but also being a person who, you know, did think for himself uh, and and, uh, you know, deeply, obviously, you know, cared, cared about the state um, as reflected in, you know, his public and private behaviors. Dr. Michael Wagner, thank you for ending your year with us here on the Friday Buzz and keep singing. Will do. On tonight's Wildlife Weekly, Jackie Sandberg explains why the white-footed mouse is an important part of the ecosystem. Welcome to Wildlife Weekly. My name is Jackie Sandberg, and I'm the Wildlife Program Manager for the Dane County Humane Society here in Madison, Wisconsin. Each week, we choose a topic related to wildlife rehabilitation or the environment. And today I want to talk about the white-footed mouse. Now, it's not a species that we see very often in rehabilitation, but there are so many different types of mice out there that it's kind of hard to know the difference. And white-footed mice are actually kind of cool. They're one of the mice that actually have maybe more positives than negatives when it comes to being in our ecosystem. Because I know that mice get a lot of really negative attention and they get a bad rap. So I was thinking about mice because, of course, this is 
like the winter time and mice are going to be inside people's houses. They're going to be out and about. They're going to be staying in places with people probably more often because of warm temperatures. So they don't like to be out in the cold and they'd probably prefer to be in somewhere warm, whether it's a building or, you know, it could be your own home. It could be your office. It could be wherever. So when I think about the mice, I'm thinking about the house mouse. So that's, of course, the one that usually bothers people the most. And as rehabilitators, we certainly have, you know, rehabilitated house mice before, although they're going to be the ones that are probably the most spread out and are all over the world. So they're not really native to this area. They've just become ubiquitous. They are on every population and there are so, so many of them. <laughs> they have actually a very short lifespan, actually a little longer than the white-footed mouse, usually living about a year and a half, up to two years if you're going to keep them as a pet. The house mouse is one of those that actually continually reproduces throughout its lifetime until it is deceased. So it could have up to 15 litters or so, and they are constantly having babies. And that's why you might have so many mice in your house or in your area. Now, white-footed mice are a little bit different. So they're native to the what we call the Nearctic region. So they're all throughout the eastern United States, also into Wisconsin. About maybe the northern part of Wisconsin is not really part of their range. So we may see them more in the southern area, such as here in Dane County. But they also are found out to the Atlantic area. And then they also are found into Mexico and the Yucatan Peninsula. Montana is about their furthest west. So kind of a niche area, but they are found in mostly the dry forested areas. And they also don't mind living in brushlands. They're the type of mouse that actually isn't going to necessarily be staying in your house. They actually kind of prefer to be outdoors. They do well in areas where it's urban and there are definitely areas for them to eat like agricultural settings. And they are probably going to be found in places where they're in, you know, old bird nests or tree hollows or something if, if you are going to find them whether they're building their nests in that place for their babies or if that's where you're looking for them if you were a predator. Because of course, one of the benefits of their being in existence here in the wild is also that they are food for a lot of our other species like raptors and foxes and snakes and others. So yeah, usually in more warmer, kind of drier areas, but they are a little bit smaller than our house mouse in general. They are only about 15 to 25 grams, which is pretty small. And they're generally kind of like this reddish brown color and they have a beautiful white belly, but they have a lot longer feet than the general deer mouse or the house mouse that we see around most often in our area. That long hind foot is what kind of gives them away. So there's a lot of species of mice, but that's the one that is, you know, obviously important for their species identification and why they're called white footed mice is obviously because they're white. So that's pretty neat. It's about <clears throat> more than 22 millimeters long. So I think that can be very cool. That is, you know, at the largest range, but still very neat. So we have these white-footed mice that can have maybe about two to four litters of babies every year. Usually they're breeding from about March to October and can have anywhere from two to nine babies. And mice are the type of species that if they are, you know, predated upon or their nest is destroyed or something happens, they will one by one take their babies to an alternate nest site and they just grab them kind of behind the neck and then one by one start taking them to another safe place. So I think that's pretty neat. I think there are a lot of rodent species that do that for their behavior. Otherwise, a little bit more about them is that they are primarily nocturnal and they're kind of solitary and kind of territorial, although their home ranges will overlap with others. Females will become a lot more territorial during the breeding season, again, which is pretty normal for a lot of our species. And they say that the density on average, and this is coming from, by the way, a different museum, University of Michigan, has a really great website for all these different species with lots of information if you want to know more details. But they do say that generally there's about four to 12 mice for every acre, and that's just white-footed mice in general. 
And then otherwise they're omnivorous. They eat a lot of different types of foods, grains, fruits, nuts, insects. One of the best economic important benefits that they have for us in general is that they do eat gypsy moths and that's an insect pest for us as people. So that's kind of neat. And then the other fun thing, and this was something I didn't know before looking up a little bit more information about white-footed mice, is that they actually spread different types of fungus. They eat the sporing bodies and then they excrete those spores through their feces. So the point of that is that they can spread those fungus into different like forest areas. And that can be an an incredible thing because they use those nutrients than the trees do to be able to do really well. Like the health of the trees are better when there are more white-footed mice being able to excrete some of that fungus through their feces. I think that that's really, really cool. And that's just one of the items in their diet. Otherwise, they obviously are mice, so there's still risks associated with them, which means they have, you know, different diseases they can carry, especially ticks that have Lyme's disease. Also, they can have hantavirus, which is a disease that can affect people. It's, again, in their feces, but it really depends on what area they are living in and whether it's very prevalent there. And then they do eat seeds of oak trees and pines, and so that could maybe be an issue, especially if they are a high density in a certain area. But otherwise, I think there are a lot of benefits to having them around. I guess that's a little bit about our white-footed mice. If you're interested, again, in learning a little bit more about this species, because again, as rehabilitators, we have to know about all of these different types of animals that might come in at any moment, check out the University of Michigan Museum of Zoology website. It's animaldiversity.org, and you can look up so many different types of wild species and just you can learn everything about them. So really highly recommend them and want to thank those folks for letting me use some of that information for a radio segment today here on WORD. So that's a little bit about the white-footed mouse here and where they live and what they are. Hopefully you're not catching any of them in your house this year. And, (laughs) you know, mice, they're super fun. We actually really like them a lot. But yes, I do understand that there is that human and animal conflict that sometimes arises. But as rehabilitators, we're here to help if you need advice or thoughts or suggestions on what to do. If you do have them, as a reminder, please don't use baits or poisons or sticky glue traps or anything that would harm other animals or humans or pets. And that would be much preferred if you are trying to get rid of them in your house. So if you have any questions about wildlife or you find some animals sick or injured, please give us a call at 608-287-3235. Otherwise, this has been Wildlife Weekly. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Your headline writer this evening was John Klein-Wilson. Your reporter was Ella Saff. Special thanks to feature contributors Andy Moore of the Friday Buzz and Jackie Sandberg. Super Dave Lawrenson engineered the show. Faye Parks produced this newscast. And Charlie Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Sarah Hopeful. Stay up to date with the WRT Local News podcast and subscribe wherever you keep up with your podcasting needs. And I'm your host, Christian Knutson. Up next is Spanish language news with the Nuestro Patio. Good night. <laughs>